Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Gemma and welcome to another episode of Good Influence. This is the podcast where I welcome our guests to discuss their experiences, answer your questions and teach us something new. This week we're talking about Web3 and the climate. The role of storytelling in bringing climate conversations to new audiences and technologies, the importance of new systems for people around the world and I learn what Web3 actually means. So joining me this week is Sophia Lee. Sophia is an award-winning journalist, film director, and environmental advocate. She hosts Meta's climate-focused podcast, Climate Talks, is a co-founder of Steward, a Web3 collective working for people and the planet, as well as being an official United Nations human rights champion. Meta spent $36 billion trying to build the metaverse. Meanwhile, UN climate scientists believe that they can halt climate change with just $300 billion. So before I get into asking you about stewards, I'd love to start with some more kind of general questions. So first of all, how did you first kind of get involved in communicating climate issues? Yes, well, I like to say that everyone has a climate story and I always love asking people, what is your climate story? So I definitely want to ask you that later. And, you know, sometimes people are like, well, I don't I don't have a climate story. I grew up in the city and I always say, well, you know, we ourselves, our nature, even if you grew up in the city, there that is the ecosystem in itself. Um, and maybe you have this beautiful story where you always went into the mountains or you always went to the beach with your family or the first time you were really enamored with a piece of land or an animal that, you know, really got your attention. Um, so I think from there, understanding our own climate stories, we then can build that emotional connection. And then we really start to understand why we have the roles that we play in communicating about the climate. I think there's a massive storytelling gap in the climate space. Um, we've known about this information for more than 30 years, and mm-hmm. yet the funding climate still is the least charitable cause of any funding group. And the climate crisis receives less than 2% of global philanthropy. So I feel like there is a massive storytelling gap, a massive financial gap. And those are a, those are a few of the reasons why I like to communicate about climate is because of my own climate story. And that's kind of how I brought in, got brought into this. That's actually really surprising, that start to me, that, you know, as little as 2% of kind of what's going to charity right now is focused on climate like I I honestly would have thought that would have been bigger do you do you think that is a lot to do with kind of forming that emotional connection that some people just don't quite have with that issue when you hear climate crisis it doesn't doesn't connect emotionally with a lot of people yet yeah I think it's based off of a few different reasons. One is a systemic reason, and then the other one for sure can be emotional. Um, the systemic reason is that there is a lot of funding going towards, you know, fossil fuel companies spend billions to make sure that basically the climate crisis is not the center of attention. Um, mm-hmm. It's like BP, British Petroleum, they were the ones who first marketed on a mass scale the individual carbon footprint just to get Mm -hmm. the attention off of fossil fuel companies. So there's a lot of systemic issues. There's politics that are involved. That's a big thing in the US is that climate, it shouldn't be, but it ends up being a partisan issue. So then politics get involved into it. Um, So there's a lot of systemic issues why I think climate funding ends up being the least amount of any charitable cause. But then there's also a massive emotional one because there's a huge learning gap. And, um, you know, majority of Americans are climate delayers. So we're not climate deniers where mm. we deny that climate science 
is not real. We know that the science is real, but 70% of Americans, according to the Yale School of Climate Change, ends up being climate delayers because it's too overwhelming. We have lives, you know, we have children, we have jobs, we have food to put on the table. So most people end up being climate delayers, which means that they believe that the climate change is real. They believe Mm -hmm. in the science but they delay it because there's so many other things happening. And that goes into carbon privilege, et cetera. And is that kind of delaying in terms of they don't think it's happening quite yet or just delaying the own, their own actions that they're willing to take to do something about it? I think both. Um, I also think that, you know, recently, last year, four out of five Americans experienced a climate-induced disaster. So a wildfire, a flood, a hurricane. So it's not like we're not experiencing the impacts of climate change yet. Mm -hmm. It's more that it's a form, it's a natural form of a coping mechanism. So I think it's like human behavior 101 where we have these coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. and it often starts with denial or delay. And that's true in any spectrum of emotions that we go through. So if you look, I often compare understanding the climate crisis with going through the grief cycle. The grief cycle, as we all know, it's if we've if you've ever lost anyone that you've loved, it's a huge impact on your life and it's not like you ever just get over that loss. It's that you become and you you have this awareness and acceptance of the loss and you learn to live with it. Mm-hmm. So In the grief cycle, there's seven stages of emotions, and you start with denial, anger, frustration, the delaying part. And then you work through all the stages of emotions, and then at the end, you get into acceptance. And I think with the climate crisis, it's very much following the same grief cycle because we are grieving on a mass scale, but instead of individual grief where, you know, a loved one died, we're grieving on a collective level where we're going through the sixth mass extinction right now. So we are losing biodiversity, we're losing species, we're losing vulnerable communities, we're losing indigenous communities. We're losing a lot, but it's on a collective grief level. And we've never really been taught how to grieve collectively, only how to collectively, only how to individually grieve. So I think when, you know, when someone loses a loved one, everyone could be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Take all the time you need. Um, I know how difficult this must be, or I don't know how difficult this is, but take the time you need. But when it comes on a collective grieving level, it's not like we could, you know, I could have an out of, out of office message that's saying, hi, I'm grieving because of the climate crisis. I wish I could. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. I should, but that's, that <laughs> maybe is... Maybe you should try that out. <laughs> Gemma, if you do it, I'll do it. So maybe we have... Out of sure, office at I'm the same time. I'm always happy for an out of office. I am uncontactable. <laughs> yeah. I'm off the grid. I'm grieving right now. We're going through the mass six mass extinction and I'll come back in acceptance. But yeah, so I think that that is one of the reasons is that there's, we just haven't been given the tools to understand how to process this because it's a lot. I mean, yeah, it really is. People are constantly kind of talking about climate anxiety and I know there's kind of wider conversations as well around you know, what kind of communities are maybe in a privileged enough position to take the time to feel climate anxiety rather than even, you know, having to day to day face the consequences. Um, I'm going to swing us around in a nice little circle so we can come back to that later. Basic and probably essential question to this conversation. What is Web3? Ooh, what is Web3? Okay, so Web3 is basically the third iteration of the internet. Mm Mm-hmm. Web one, we've all experienced web one and web two, but we didn't really kind of use this verbiage. So that's why I think it's a little bit confusing. So web one was just reading. It was a one-way street with the internet. So think about in the 90s when you had dial-up and it was just reading. You could only read, but you couldn't input yet. You couldn't, it was before MySpace. It was like before you could actually have input. So Mm -hmm. web one is read. Web two is read and write. So think about social media era, how we can now Wikipedia, social media, Instagram, whatever, TikTok, 
even this podcast, we could both read and write. And there's a two-way, two-way communication level, both from mm-hmm. you know, us, ourselves, and the internet. Web three is read, write, and ownership. So Okay. Ownership is a big one because I think oftentimes we don't think about ownership in Web 2. We think, oh, if I post this picture on Instagram, it's obviously mine. It's a picture of my face. But technically, Instagram, Meta, owns that. Um, A lot of ownership we think we have, but actually it's not ours at all. So there's a lot of tech companies like the Metas, the TikToks, the Snapchats, the Googles. They have hundreds and thousands of data points on us. And we think because it's free, we're like, oh, because it's free, we can use it like it's safe. But actually, they, when it, something is free, they, they then use data as their, mm-hmm. as their monetary exchange. So because they have hundreds and thousands of data points on us, they sell them to advertisers. That's why, um, you know, that's why we're always hit with advertisers, you know, when we're like talking about a couch and then all of a sudden that couch pops up on our feed and yeah. or we're talking about a jewelry and it pops up. So ownership is a huge one because we actually don't have a lot of the ownership we think we have in Web2 right now. And ownership is also a big one because you look at creatives who are on social media, photographers, designers, graphic designers, etc. And they aren't able to monetize through these platforms right now. Um, so mm-hmm. Web3 is read, write, own. Okay. I mean, I've definitely learned something there. And that was a great explanation. I feel like I've tried to kind of, well, I mean, obviously prepping for this episode. It's all just one of these things that I just find quite confusing. So, I mean, I feel like I can kind of get on board with cryptocurrency, but I think that's kind of become, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't massively understand how it's all kind of mined and all that kind of stuff but I think that's easier to wrap your head around because even you know like some of the the newer banks that are popping up now are all very kind of digital based banks like we pay you know digitally contactless like all, all the rest of these things I feel like cash is becoming less common already so that's kind of something else to get your head around a bit NFTs. I have tried to understand and I just don't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But Gemma, let me ask you this. Cause you're like, I don't understand cryptocurrency. I, mm-hmm. I don't fully understand either, but like, do you really understand how the internet works? Um, I mean, no, not really, but not yeah. too. I think it's one, it's one of those things where like, even if you don't understand how it works, it's still quite easy to access. Whereas that's not how I feel about cryptocurrency. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, you know, when the internet was first invented in the nineties, ask your parents, was the internet easy to understand or was there kind of a learning curve? And I think that mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that we use today and we don't really know how it works in its entirety. Right. Sure. So everyone who's like, I cannot even enter the web3 space. I don't I don't even want to understand it. I don't even know how to begin. I'm like the thing is is that ha- thinking that you need to know everything about it in order to use it is like going to be the biggest barrier. Yeah. Because once you're like I'm not going to know everything. And I don't I one, I don't know everything about the climate, but I'm in this space. There's so much I'm learning every single day. I don't know everything mm-hmm. about the internet, but I still use the internet every day, right? And so that's the same thing with Web3 is that I'm not going to know everything, but I'm still going to be part of it. And honestly, the majority of people in this space, which are white men, they don't know shit about it. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> they don't know. Like, I actually am on panels with men who are in cryptocurrency in web three. And I realized like you actually, I know more than they do because I think women tend to always feel like we need to know everything before we even get into it. Mm-hmm. And kind of men just dive, dive head first. And they're like, Oh, a new way to have capital and have financial gain. Great. I'm just yeah. going to go for it. You know, or like, it's even like as simple as like when you're playing sports, like, women are like, oh, I, I, I really don't know how to play sp- 
baseball or softball or volleyball, like, and then guys are just like, you know what, let's just play this. Let's just play the game. And sometimes it's like, we have to remind ourselves, like, we just have to like enter the space and start playing. And then we start to understand it better. Go into the room with the confidence of a mediocre white man is one of exactly. one of those great yeah. quotes. We'll just dive in and see what happens. Yeah. Okay, so thinking about this episode in terms of kind of Web3 and how it relates to climate. So I'll start from, I guess, what my thoughts on that would be in terms of the things that I know connect the two are things like when we're talking about cryptocurrency and how much kind of computing power and therefore electricity and energy that that takes that uses that is something that would have a knock-on effect maybe on the climate and that's kind of one of the main talking points that I've really heard around you know possibly a negative side to these kind of like newer technology web3 sort of arena technologies what would you say are the kind of relationships between these new platforms and new kind of ways of working and ways of taking ownership and how they have a climate impact positive or negative because I might just be biased here yeah okay well one we have to understand that anything we use is of an entire spectrum of energy usage. It's going to have both a positive and negative impact. Mm-hmm. So, but we often vilify new technology. So, I think that, you know, yes, Web3 has a massive energy and it has intense, massive energy usage. Um, but we also have to remember it's a spectrum and we have to show the full picture and not silo it. So, we vilify new tech because it's easy, because it's different. We're uncomfortable with change. Um, so when the internet was first invented, it had insane amounts of energy usage, actually even more than Web3 now because it was new, the technology was just being like developed. And the more mm-hmm. we use technology, the less energy intensive it becomes. You know, like when EVs first came out, it was a lot really energy intensive. The more that it becomes the norm, the more that we're, you know, ch- uh, advancing the technology, the more it scales, the less energy uses. So that's going to be the thing with any new technology. So Web3 mm-hmm. is going through that iteration right now where we're just like acclimating and adapting to it because it's a new tech, um, mining, cryptocurrency, all of that. So when the internet was first invented, it also used an insane amount of energy. And I remember actually, I was doing a lot of research on it because I couldn't figure out why everyone was talking about Web3 energy usage and we weren't even no one even mentioned it in the vein of web two energy usage. So web Mm -hmm. two right now, our usage right now is uh, like, it's also really shrouded. So a lot of, there's not a lot of transparent data, but I remember in South by Southwest, I was talking to this woman who worked at Oracle, which is like um, Amazon web services, like AWS, Oracle, they, they're basically like the data computing, like they, they're the data uh, services for everything that is online. And yeah. she was talking about how, how much energy usage, how much energy is being used right now to store all this data. And web two right now is severely energy intensive, just as much as certain countries energy use as well. But we never really talk about it because we're already in it. We're already just, we're in web two, like no one is going to give up the internet. So we don't yeah. talk about it, but web three mm-hmm. is like this new unknown thing. So we can like kind of give that the bad like that's the bad guy, but like we could give mm-hmm. it that mark. Um, so all to say, I don't, I'm not like a, oh, this is good. This is bad. I'm like, let's talk about the holistic picture. Let's talk about the entire spectrum. And if we really want to talk about, you know, decentralized systems versus centralized systems, like basically web two, if we're talking about just financial, we're very much a centralized system. So that's like banking systems and Web3, which is this umbrella, and then there's crypto and metaverse underneath it. Crypto is technically a decentralized system. Web3 is. And when we're talking about the energy uses of usage of decentralized systems, we have to compare it to centralized systems. Often we don't in media headlines and articles and this like in the kind of negative bias of it. And if we're talking about centralized financial systems, which is banking systems, banking systems, mm-hmm. the world's large the world's 60 largest banks are the biggest fossil fuel funders. So if we talk about centralized systems, we're talking about 
these systems that actually created the climate crisis. So it's kind of very skewed right now. And we really silo and cherry pick kind of what we talk about in the data. And I think that's kind of the problem. Not that like, I'm not saying Web3 isn't energy intensive. It very much is. I'm just saying like we need to show kind of the full spectrum of information before coming to these conclusions. That's really useful perspective because that's I mean that's completely true like I hadn't I've I've definitely read things about you know how much how much energy our kind of data storage uses so like for example we in general keep a lot of stuff in kind of cloud storage systems and I know that that is something you know all that data is stored somewhere and it's in all these big kind of server farms that take up a lot of energy but that's kind of about as much as I'd ever really heard about you know the energy cost of the internet as we know it today. So I think that's that's a really, really interesting perspective on kind of, yeah, where we're pointing the finger at and where, I think when something is brand new in this day and age specifically in a kind of, you know, the more we know kind of situation, when something is new, we kind of look at it and we're like, okay, well, if we're making new stuff, why don't we make it better than the old stuff? But I get what you're saying that, you know, it, it, it very often is the case that when something's new, yeah, it, it needs more to go into it before it becomes more popularized, I guess. Yeah. And when something's new, in order for it to be cost efficient, you need scalability. Mm-hmm. And that's the case with anything. And that's why the current systems right now, like gas, oil, like all of the all the things that have created the climate crisis, that's why they're so cheap is because they were like the only option that was scalable and that's what's available now. But actually, you know, we just have to see, like we have to get the masses and if everyone starts using them, that's when it becomes more energy efficient. I mean, becomes more cost effective. Yeah, that makes sense too. Okay, so let's talk about Steward. Tell me a bit about it and then kind of, I guess, I guess why you wanted to to found that kind of company and like how is that different from maybe some of the other web3 companies that are are popping up at the moment. Yeah, so I think that even beyond steward one of the reasons why I I love climate and trying to problem solve in climate and I why I love being a journalist and a storyteller is really because I consider myself a futurist. So a futurist is just someone who believes in the future and believes in creating a better future and is like always problem solving and being like, what can we do to create and the future that I want to live in? And I think that that was like always one of the most romantic things of being a human is like being a futurist. Like we were all, we're all futurists in a sense, because we're all like thinking about a better future. And I think today being a futurist has been shrouded in this very doom and gloom narrative within climate. And just even beyond, even if we don't mention climate, the future in media and Hollywood movies, it's very much like this, like post-apocalyptic world that is being depicted. Right. Yeah. And, and so when web three started becoming more of a thing, I think that I was very fascinated by it. Um, I, I was very curious about it. And I think a lot of times in the climate space, we have always said we need new systems in place entirely. So, Mm -hmm. um, the current systems that we have, they're the ones who've that those are the systems that have caused the climate crisis and we need completely new systems and we can't be building new systems on on top of this crippling foundation it's like building a new house on a rotted foundation like you would completely excavate it and a lot of times we were talking about this very hypothetically so like politicians policy workers climate defenders they were all talking about these new systems very hypothetically. And then Web3 started to come into play. And, and I was very fascinated by, about it because it was an entirely new system that wasn't built off of the current systems that we know of. Web3 in its most purest idealistic form is completely decentralized. Um, and I think that even the origins of Bitcoin, how no one, no one specifically, well, everyone says like this, this pseudonym Satoshi was the one who invented Bitcoin, but actually 
people believe that it was a community of people and no one came forth to be like claiming it because mm-hmm. they want they knew that if anyone claimed it like if Bezos was like I created Amazon and Musk was like I created Tesla and Bill Gates was like I created Microsoft you would then have these centralized systems again so instead yeah. what happened was that they had the pseudonym and they were like, no, we're going to try to keep it as decentralized as possible where like not one person or not one name is being like, this is the ultimate creator because it should be a people's thing, like a community thing. So when you talk about decentralized in this, contract, in this context, it's talking about the fact that it's kind of owned by the people at large rather than it being owned by specific, you know, like a small number of corporations being in charge of something. The idea of Web3 as a platform or a collection of technologies is that it's available to and kind of in the hands of everyone it's not owned by specific people is am I getting that right yeah exactly and I don't think that's radical by any means I think if you look at before the industrial revolution co-ownership community ownership that was very much the norm it still is the norm in indigenous communities today Um, and I think when we talk about web3 a lot of people use web3 and metaverse interchangeably but that's not true at all. Web3 is this umbrella and then metaverse, crypto, NFTs, all of that falls underneath it. And Web3 is this, it's it's almost like an ideology. And I think we haven't had that in Web1 or Web2. It's this ideology mm-hmm. of like who owns like this decentralization. So that's why I was fascinated by it and wanted to dive into it. And then I'm like, I could go on forever. But- <laughs> There was basically a lot that I saw in Web3 that can help scale climate solutions and Mm -hmm. transfer capital from the space. And even though I loved the ideology and the purity of Web3, at the beginning when Web3 was really in the headlines, it was mostly cryptocurrency. This is why I think Stuart, we really launched Stuart. So as of September 2021, the total market capitalization of the cryptocurrency market was around $2.5 USD. Meta spent $36 billion trying to build the metaverse, and investors were paying millions of dollars for virtual land in the metaverse. Meanwhile, according to the last IPCC report, all climate solutions exist. They just need 10 times more funding. And UN climate scientists believe that they can halt climate change with just $300 billion. So I was looking at these numbers and being like, wait, this isn't computing. Yeah. How is cryptocurrency like a trillion dollar market now and Meta spending billions of dollars on the metaverse and people are paying millions of dollars for virtual land and building forests there when like our natural ecosystems and our forests aren't even being protected right now, like our carbon sinks. And when we talk about reversing the climate crisis, everyone's like, oh, that's impossible it's so much money and yet all this money is being you know funneled into this space so it was just basically i was like we just need to transfer capital from this space into protecting the natural world and i'm like this has this should have always been the case even in Mm -hmm. web 2 even in web 1 anytime there is a digital world that needs to protect something in the natural world and so that's kind of how Stuart launched was basically to close this climate funding gap and to really just to also build an emotional connection with us to nature that makes so much sense yeah I mean those numbers are wild I mean yeah as um as as we're having this conversation yeah that kind of last stage of the IPCC report has just come out and yeah as you say it's kind of people do talk about these kind of solutions as in as if they are impossible and everyone's going to have to com- completely give up everything they love and change all of their lifestyles and nothing can be the same and we're all going to be miserable but actually if you read what the climate scientists are saying these things are so so possible it's just people won't put the money where it needs to go it's very frustrating yeah yeah so we were like okay everyone's obsessed with web3 and well there's a niche community that is like really excited about it. And then there's also so many people who are being left out of this Web3 transition, which, you know, happened with the dot-com boom era where people of color, women and marginalized communities were completely left out of it. So it's like the people who are already rich getting richer. And I'm like, that's Mm -hmm. not going to happen in this space. Like I don't want climate. I don't want vulnerable communities. I don't want um, artists of color, women. I don't want any of us to be left out of this transition. So Mm -hmm. let's build steward where we 
focus on this community, transfer capital from this space, digital world into the natural world, and just like test it out as a theory to see if it's possible while also infiltrating from within. Okay, so give us your kind of, not elevator pitch, but sort of short short explanation of you know how steward works and how have you kind of tried to set that up as a company so that it does that job of moving money into climate solutions where it needs to be yeah so we say steward is the bridge between the natural world and the digital world because without a thriving natural world there's actually no digital world so who cares if about the metaverse and web3 if like we don't have a thriving natural world. <laughs> There's no planet and, left to host it on. <laughs> yeah, there'll be no data servers. It doesn't even matter. Um, and how we do it is we use on-chain technology. Basically, with on-chain technology, we can guarantee that funds will continuously be donated to climate nonprofits. So how we do that is through digital art. The digital art mimics the eight major ecosystems of the world. So taiga, tundra, chaparral, ocean, tropical rainforest, etc. Mm-hmm. Eight of those, eight of the ecosystems are matched up with it with a global artist. So all of our artists are, they are independent artists. They're BIPOC. They're um, they're very much left out of the Web three space. And then what they depict the eight major ecosystems, and those eight major ecosystems is directly funding a climate nonprofit directly working in that ecosystem. That's is specifically focused on conservation, indigenous, environmental justice, nonprofits. Amazing. Thank you. And I guess before we move on to questions, I mean, as we're kind of talking about, it's all, you know, kind of weaving that sort of climate focus into these new technologies and kind of also, I guess, trying to bring people into those new technologies so they are more decentralized and more scalable, as you said. So how do you see or what would your kind of advice maybe be for people who still feel like they're very much on the outside of anything web3 related what are the kind of very starter level ways that you think we as a general population will start to be more involved in these kind of web3 platforms well one i think a lot of people feel like they're they're really late to this game, or at least my mm-hmm. friends say that. They're like, oh, I can't get into it. It's like, I'm very late to this. And actually, it's entirely the opposite. We're so, so early. So early that we can still, you know, infiltrate the space and create it. So that's why I think as many of us who look different and are from different backgrounds, genders, races, and classes, and get involved in this as possible, the better, because it's still being created. Um, I always say that, you know, the technology is very much decentralized. So blockchain is decentralized, but the capital and the people in it are still very much centralized. So the capital and the wealth and the people who are, you know, usually white males, it's very centralized. Um, but if we enter the space, we can infiltrate from within, we can truly decentralize it. And so we're, we're not late at all. We're actually super early. We're like at the we're not even at the MySpace era of Web2. So if we're like talking about Web3, everyone thinks Web3 is already here and it's already exists. But no, Web3 technically, it, the ideology exists, but we're not operating Web3 yet. We're operating in like Web2.5, maybe like Web2.2 even. Um, so we're not even in the like MySpace era. So like imagine before, if you knew what social media was going to be and you knew like the creator economy and TikTok and Instagram, all of that was going to happen. And you knew all of that was going to happen. And MySpace still didn't exist. Like you knew what was about to come, like how much more was about to happen. Right. Okay. So, so we're way back. This makes me feel better. We're way back. We're so early. And that's also the the beauty of it is because we're so early, one, it's okay if we don't all enter the space at once um, because it's still being built and it's really not perfect right now. And I think a lot of people think it needs to be perfect, the energy usage, et cetera. Um, so if you don't have like a very malleable, you know, like, okay, let's see how it goes, like very curious mindset, like maybe it's 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 not going to appease you right now, basically, because it's still being... Mm-hmm. It's still being built as we speak. We're like building the plane as we fly kind of thing. Um, but two, if you're if you're really curious and you love building things as it goes and being part of it, Web3 is going to happen, whether or not we like it, prob- definitely in our lifetimes. So I would say just get involved. And Steward is a great 
way because we're all newbies. We're all skeptics and crypt and critics of the space itself. I'm very much a critic of the Web3 era. I go into these spaces and I'm very much calling out the energy usage and all of that, but I also show the full picture um, mm-hmm. and how we could do better. And that's kind of what building a system should be is like calling things out and being like, wait, this isn't working. Why are we doing like this? Let's build it better. And that's kind of the room we have and the space. We- this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You have to play with right now, and so, like, let's play with it. Let's make sure that we're included and that we're building it for the people. Every week, my guest and I will be answering your questions. And the first one comes in from Carla, who asks, what has been your experience being a woman in such a male dominated field like crypto slash web three? Thank you, Carla. Um, Honestly, there definitely have been panels where I'm the only female, the only person of color, even And it's discouraging, but actually at the end of it, it just shows that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And actually, I wish more of us would. And that's why I want to bring as many female and people of different backgrounds into this space. Because you see, you see complete panels with like seven different white males all talking about the same thing and they don't have any diversity in their backgrounds and experiences. And you're like, this is exactly why I need to exist in this space. I kind of think it reaffirms why I'm doing what I'm doing as difficult as it may be sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that makes, makes sense given, you know, you're obviously quite passionate about trying to make sure that different people are included in the space. I think it was, you know, it's a relevant question because I guess your kind of passion for passion for that which has come across in what we've been talking about so far must be you know kind of informed by the experiences that you've had so far in that space and kind of not seeing a lot of people like you at those tables yeah exactly next question is from aurea who says the internet bridges us to unlimited access to information sometimes it's overwhelming that we just don't know where to start anymore how do we educate ourselves more about climate issues? Where do we go? Are there specific websites and newsletters that are reliable? And what can we do to help? Yeah, good question, Aurea. That's probably the question I get the most is what can I do to help? And a lot of times, you know, people, other people would say, you know, go on a plant-based diet or um commute to work or travel less, et cetera. And those are all great things. And I think first we have to go through our own climate journey ourselves. And I think that there's a lot of climate healing that needs to happen from an individual level in order to transcend to a collective level. So I have so many resources and books and movies and things I could give you. But at the end of the day, the most impactful thing that I think I've done and other people have told me they've done is really just to go through their own climate healing journey. And that really, that brings in your climate story, that brings in your emotional connection to nature, that brings in your emotional connection to yourself. If you're not treating yourself properly, 
which, you know, you are nature, why would you treat the outside world properly? And that gets a little bit deeper and a little bit spiritual and a little bit, you know, goes into healing and generational trauma and a lot of different things, but it's all interconnected because Mm -hmm. we like nature is a representation of the human psyche. So I, I used to give people advice like read this book. Like I can still give you all those suggestions, but really if you just have some stillness and, know that the answers are within and really just understand your own journey and like where you are and always do this like audit of like your mm-hmm. connection to yourself and nature. I think that awareness and attention will transcend because that will slowly plant seeds and help you, you know, then you'll proactively choose to look out for resources or you'll proactively choose to get involved into with your local community. So I think that's like kind of the impetus where it all starts. Okay, I like that answer because I think, yeah, that is maybe a slightly different perspective than a lot of the conversations we come across in terms of, yeah, you know, kind of straight advice on getting involved in this stuff. I think that's that's a nice idea to sort of sit with yourself and interrogate your sort of motivations coming into it and all that sort of thing because I think that can only be a good thing. And we probably will uh, hopefully get some of those more physical recommendations from you at the end of the podcast anyway so perfect best of both worlds there um I'll ask you one last question okay so this question I'm just going to read you an excerpt from what was a much longer email from Masha um it was a very thoughtful email kind of more about web3 as a concept I'm going to read you this part First of all, I want to say I think you're both doing amazing work and it's always easy to criticise from the outside. I just feel like, isn't it all a bit too much? Wouldn't it make more sense to not always put our energy into exploring new ideas and instead focus on what's already around? Putting a lot of time and effort into developing things like cryptocurrency and Web3 is probably great and interesting, but I'd guess it's kind of confusing for the majority. So as I said, that email kind of went on a bit longer, but I think what it really boiled down to in terms of as a question for you is that part about why is it important to look forward to these new systems and new kind of decentralized systems, as you said, rather than trying to work on what we already have. So what what I will now refer to as Web2. Okay, that's that's such a good question, Masha. And I think that a lot of times change can feel really uncomfortable and it's like, wait, why don't we just focus on what we have now? We haven't even perfected what we have now. Like why spend energy on doing this new thing that, you know, and onboard all these people on. And the the reality is, is that the current systems we have, like I mentioned previously in the podcast, doesn't serve the people. It serves the systems. And I think, for example, during COVID, during lockdown, everyone was saying, oh, look, nature is healing humans are the virus. Do you remember hearing this? I do. Yep. A lot. And the thing is, is that humans are not the virus because we actually, we ourselves are nature again. It's the systems that we exist in that are the viruses. So capitalism, colonialism, consumerism, all the excess of this, these are the viruses that have caused the climate crisis. And these are the same systems that continue causing the problems and really just leave so many communities behind. And the reason why we're trying to explore this new system is because the current systems we have now don't benefit anyone. Even if we think, even if you're like a very capitalistic person and you own like the largest fossil fuel company in the world, it benefits you financially, but it does not benefit you from an ecological standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it could only benefit you financially if there's an ecology to fall back on, like for you to live on. So the thing is, is that we're talking about ecological wealth. We're talking instead of, you know, intergenerational wealth. And yeah, it's just the systems we've existed in. They, I think we, the biggest fallacy in our lives is being convinced that they serve us when really they don't serve us at all. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't serve our health. They don't serve our communities. They don't serve our emotional spirits. Um, they're making us sick. They're making us have insane rates of mental health issues. They're uh, making us 
have internalized capitalism where we think being productive and overworking is the solution when actually that's not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they're thinking that we have scarcity and food and land and things that are our natural human rights, clean water, clean air. These are our natural human rights. And the fact that we don't have it today in the 21st century, that's insane. We have all the technologies that every single person in the world can have clean air and clean water, but that's still not the case. And so that's just to say like the systems we know of right now, we may exist in them. They may seem fine, but they're not sustainable and they don't serve us truly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Great, great answer. I'm just sat here nodding at you. Obviously, nobody else can see that because this is a podcast. But I'm just sat here nodding at you over over Zoom. I think, yeah, I think it's easy depending on who you are, and that's not me making a judgment to Masha who asked the question because I think you know there's a lot of people you you can see this perspective depending on who you are, your personal circumstances, kind of where you live in the world, even like all of those sorts of things. I think we probably have quite a range of perspectives on whether things are working well right now or not. And yeah, as you say, if we kind of maybe try and broaden that perspective and look at, you know, the health of the planet overall and the health of a wide range of different communities around the world, rather than just the one that maybe you or I live in. Yeah, it becomes clearer to see that the systems that even if we feel like they're kind of fine for now, they're actually, they're not fine for everyone. Therefore, yeah, they need, need a bit of a reboot. Yeah. And even if you, even if you think you are fine, like truly, if you like zoom in a little bit on your day-to-day life, like even blue collar workers, like you actually start to realize like it's not benefiting you. Even if you do live in a very privileged like area or you live in a global North, like day to day it's it's truly not benefiting you you think we can do it better as well as what I'm yes, like, that's I, the whole idea of web 3 that i'm getting from you in this episode is that okay this is isn't going super great let's let's make a new one let's try again and do it better for everyone yeah and let me just say i don't think web 3 is like the end all be all like it's going to be the ultimate cure to all of our problems i just think it helps us get out of the current mindsets and systems that we already function in and we know so well and are so comfortable in and being like, wait, what does that benefit me? Is that working for me? Mm -hmm. Like it takes us out of the, those current systems and helps us acclimate into something different or reimagine something different. I think radical imagination is a huge part of moving the climate crisis forward is having this radical imagination of what can change instead of being in the same kind of like patterns. Um, and that's what Web3 does is like get us out of that mindset and helps us shift into new thinkings and new new ways of thinking. If you want to know about opportunities to send in questions for upcoming guests, then follow us on Instagram or Twitter at GoodInfluenceGS, or you can email the podcast at goodinfluencepod at gmail.com. Before you go, I have three things I ask every guest. And so could you please recommend us something to read, something to listen to, and something to watch? Yes. So something to read, I would say A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. It's more of a spiritual book, um, but it talks a lot about the certain patterns that we currently live in and how to transcend them into a new world, which I think is very beneficial to the climate crisis. Um, Mm -hmm. Something that's very specific climate focused is braiding sweetgrass, which like brings us back to the nature that is and the nature that is us. Um, Something to listen to, I think... I love podcasts and I think focusing on climate solutions is a big one. So how to save a planet is a good climate solution oriented podcast. I think for both something to listen to and watch today is the spring equinox uh, in the global North. And I, when I was saying, when I was talking about getting back in tune with nature's rhythm, it's really beautiful to be in touch with the natural patterns of nature. And I think we've gotten, on this cycle of like always performing at our most optimized and no matter what time of the year it is. And, you know, winter is for hibernation and then spring is for planting seeds and really just like welcoming the new abundance that comes. So I would also say for something to listen to, something to watch is like really get out into nature, even if you're in the city and look at the new buds on the trees, get in touch with your own heart rate and how like the circadian rhythm that you're operating on. Um, And just be aware of the changing seasons because I think 
it's such a long reminder that we ourselves, our nature is just like that evolution. I love that. I, I mean, yeah, this whole we're in spring right now, just just finally maybe emerging into spring. The sun came out today while we're recording this. That's big news in London town. But yeah, I personally, I'm right there with you. I'm really enjoying kind of looking out the window and seeing there's like buds on the trees again and things are happening. And I think that is a good way to kind of tap into one, you know, feeling part of nature on the planet as a whole. And two, it is one of the ways that people can, you know, start to realize how that nature is being changed and impacted by all the kind of topics that we're thinking about. Because I mean, even conversations, you know, you might have with maybe slightly older generations who aren't that, that's very stereotypical, but you know, sometimes it's harder to get those people into these newer climate conversations. You know, if you start a conversation based around, oh, you know, that tree didn't used to bloom at this time of year and like, oh, look how things are changing and we never used to get snow in March and all of these other sorts of conversations. I, I always find that a really interesting way to kind of tap in on a on a day-to-day basis of the whole point of what we're talking about when it comes to sustainability. Yeah, 100%. And I think it makes us understand that all these emotions can coexist and we're multidimensional. So I think a lot of times people are like, I can't touch the climate crisis because it's just too overwhelming. And we know that in life, you know, we could be both be stressed and happy. We could both mm-hmm. have joy and be overwhelmed. And I think when we observe nature, we could sink into the beauty of it and process the beauty of it while also having sorrow and pain for what it's going through. And like those can coexist. And when we have that level of acceptance and understanding that these things can coexist, then we are more suitable to combat the climate crisis. And I think action is the antidote to anxiety. So when we surpass the anxiety by understanding like all of these things can coexist, then we move into the action. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Sophia, for joining me. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd love you to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're using. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave a rating and review as well. See you next week.